This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. An air and sea search is continuing for possible survivors of the Edmund Fitzgerald, a 729-foot ore carrier, which apparently broke apart and sunk last night on Lake Superior. The ship and its 29-man crew vanished in a storm with 80-mile-an-hour winds and wave heights up to 25 feet. All that has been found is an oil slick and some debris. has accompanied, well, I think, almost all our shipwreck tales, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot. At, it was a shipwreck, and we'll be discussing The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald this hour. I've managed to eke one final shipwreck tale from John McChrystal and thought... Twisted my arm. Twisted your arm, and thank you very much. I thought it would be apt to do The Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, it is quite an, an amazing story. It is. It's a cause celebre in America. Not a huge loss of life, but there's mystery surrounding it, and that seems to be enough to just raise it above your common garden shipwreck. It's been a year, did you know, John, since uh, you recorded your first shipwreck tale with us? I had an idea it must be around a year, because yeah. I have done nearly 50 of them, so that would be about right, I think. And they've been tremendous. Thank you very, very much. This is the last of the Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal, which on behalf of Radio Live and all the listeners, they've been tremendous and really, really well loved. Well, it's been an, an enormous pleasure, really, and an excuse to indulge a passion, so I think I should be thanking you. Have you got a couple of shipwrecks that you've found most compelling, the story that really gets you? I can't really go past the sort of dual shipwreck of the Invercald and the Grafton. I think quite apart from the remarkable survival stories that both of them are, the fact that they happened together on the Auckland Islands, one of my favourite parts of the world, make that one special. But I think as I was doing the shipwreck tales, the one that really stuck with me and probably moved me emotionally more than the rest was the Wahine. And I was a bit surprised by that because I've grown up knowing about the Wahine and it's always been there in the background. But actually sitting down and looking at it, 
and living in the same city, that one just had a bit of an impact. You see that piece of water frequently from your house, don't you? Yeah, and occasionally get out on it. And the other day I was aboard a vessel that had shipwreck spotting gear aboard and we sailed over the very spot where she struck. So, yeah, that kind of thing brings it home a little more too, I guess. As far as human endurance and courage and resourcefulness goes, I I would have to go with the Grafton. As you mentioned, as part of the dual shipwreck of the Grafton and the Invercald in the Auckland Islands in the 1860s, it was just the most stunning self-rescue you could imagine after being on that island for pretty much two years. That was just the most amazing. And it happened to be our very first shipwreck tale. Yeah, that's right. And and they did it in style too, really. They actually lived quite well while they were on the island. And having been there and looked at the spot they had to carve out some kind of existence from, you've just got to be in awe of those guys and what they achieved. And to build a boat and to sail, to self-rescue from there to Stewart Island, that's tough enough in an organised boat. Yeah, isn't it? And imagine what would have happened if they'd sunk. They'd disappeared without a trace. Yep. And the other two poor blighters had been left to starve, as inevitably they would have, in Carnley's Harbour. We would never have known. And you wonder how many of those stories there are in maritime history, that the ones who didn't make it and didn't bring their stories back with them. And one other, I just wanted to mention the Essex, which you brilliantly told. I can't think of another shipwreck tale that has so much... Like they're being teased and tortured over and over and over again and beginning with a whale smashing the ship. It's just bizarre and torturous. Yeah, the the karmic aspect of that. They were a whaler and they were after whales and then a whale did for them. That's got its own its own appeal. But yes, you and I kept talking about at the time the the image of the poor captain who became a hoarder of food later in life, just a tragically damaged individual afterwards. And that telling quote, when they were drawing lots for who was to be killed and eaten on the boat, one of the elder men was supposed to protect the the cabin boy, is it? And he he drew the, the lot with the black on it? That's right. And he said, I like my lot as well as any other, sir, and submitted to his fate. Uh, that story has it all, really, doesn't it? Mm. They've been tremendous, John. Thank you very much. I'm so glad we're going to do the Edmund Fitzgerald for our final hurrah, and we'll address that when we return. Just an eyes up. The Gordon Lightfoot tune is up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. The video, however, is all historical uh, footage of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and there's a lot of it there that we shall be talking about. Go to the Weekend Variety Wireless. You'll see it in, on the video section. There's some pretty compelling footage there. The Edmund Fitzgerald, when we return. The church bell chimed to the range when he dances for each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald. The legend lives on from the temple down of the big lake they call Good Sugar Man. Superior, they say, never gives up redeeming the gales of November gone early. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal. This week, the Edmund Fitzgerald who gave her name to the Gordon Lightfoot song that has accompanied all these shipwrecks. So lovely to be able to do the Edmund Fitzgerald. I had no idea, John, it was such a massive concern. 
It was an ugly, 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 but enormous ship. Almost comical it's so ugly. It looks like a child's depiction of a tugboat, like Little Toot or something, as though someone had grabbed it by the bow and then stretched the stern out almost to infinity. It's enormously long with all of its superstructure, or the bridge area anyway, crammed right forward. Fully 729 feet long, over two times the length of a rugby field. She weighs 13,500 tonnes. She can carry almost her own weight, well, almost twice her own weight, I should say, in iron ore. Just an incredible feat of engineering. And this is the iron that supplied Detroit, the steel mills, and ended up in Chevrolet's. Yeah, that's right. Uh, This is 1975, the period we're discussing, and the decade before it, which was when the Edmund Fitzgerald was in her prime. And America had been making enormous automobiles out of heavy steel for a long time, and they'd exhausted their easily accessible iron ore, and they were going after a thing called taconite, which is apparently a fairly low-quality iron ore that's found in abundance in the aptly named Iron Range in Minnesota. They were extracting the stuff hand over fist, crushing it and turning it into little marble-sized pallets. And these got loaded in bulk aboard vessels like the Edmund Fitzgerald. And there were a few of them working backwards and forwards across Lake Superior at the time. The Edmund Fitzgerald, more than 200 metres long, and she goes down. One thing, I suspect I'm not the only person that doesn't appreciate that lakes like Lake Superior, are really seas and they can be very dangerous. Yeah, now this is more than just a lake. The Edmund Fitzgerald used to steam along at something over 14 knots and it used to take her two and a half days to cross Lake Superior. So that gives some indication of just the sheer extent of it. And of course, with a broad waterway, when you've got a high wind, it creates what's called fetch, which is the ability of the wind to act upon the water and kick up waves. With a waterway this size, of course, you've got enormous fetch and you can get enormous seas, and this will become significant as the story proceeds. She was launched in June 1958. This footage of her being launched, it's a peculiar sight, isn't it? It's up on the video section if you want to see it. I recommend you do. There's a lot of historical footage there. And, of course, Gordon Lightfoot in the background. And she was named after the owner. Yeah, she's named after the chairman and president of the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, who, strangely enough, being an insurance company, were into shipping in a big way. They had a bit of spare cash, I suppose, so they used to commission ships and then charter them out to shipping companies to operate them, and that's what was happening here. Edmund Fitzgerald himself had a long family history with the Great Lakes. His grandfather was a Great Lakes skipper, and his father was the big wheel of one of the Great Lakes shipyards. So it was an appropriate name. Edmund Fitzgerald's wife was in charge of christening the Edmund Fitzgerald, the ship. She had three goes at smashing the bottle of champagne on her bow. Now, this is reckoned to be a bad omen. Yeah, as you say, it's a peculiar sight watching this thing being launched because she doesn't slip off either backwards or forwards from the dockyard. She goes down sideways, as planned, But the effect of this, this enormous thing going sideways into the water, sets up this great big wave that crosses the dockyard. It gets reflected off the opposite pier and comes back and just about washes the whole concern back onto dry land again. And apparently some of those watching, and there were 15,000 people there to witness it, reckoned that it looked as though the Edmund Fitzgerald was trying to climb out of the water. Of course, when misfortune strikes sometime down the track, everyone looks back and goes, I told you so. Yeah. 
I'm not surprised 15,000 people were there. A 222-metre-long thing like this going into the water. It would be a shocking sight. It would be awesome. Yeah. In the true meaning of the word, it would. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. She worked very hard in Lake Superior carrying iron ore. She was uh, a bit of a record breaker as well. Yeah, she was fast. She was the biggest, briefly, on Lake Superior. All of these ships were governed by a set of regulations known as the St Lawrence Seaway maximum size. There's a gap that a Great Lakes freighter had to fit through if she meant to get from the Great Lakes out to the Atlantic Ocean. And that, of course, was the St Lawrence Seaway. The maximum size you could get out there was 730 feet, hence the dimensions of the Edmund Fitzgerald at 729. There were also width and depth restrictions, and she met those as well. A year later, after her launch, another vessel was launched that was about a foot longer and maybe a couple of tonnes heavier. So for a little while, she was absolutely the biggest thing on Lake Superior. She was very fast. She hauled a heap of this iron ore around. She made 50 trips a season, each one taking around five days. Of course, when the season ended, she would be tied up at dock and then the lake would freeze over. And it wasn't until she thawed out again that they could get her working for the new season. She had a captain who was very proud of her, and whenever he navigated the locks between the lakes, he would either play music loudly over the ship's intercom or he would come out on the bridge wing with a bullhorn and give anyone who happened to be watching this spectacle the guts of the vessel. He'd give them the dimensions, what she was capable of doing, what she'd done in the past and what have you. His name is Peter Pulser and he and the Edmund Fitzgerald became something of a celebrity on Lake Superior. The Edmund Fitzgerald was famous before she sank. Absolutely. She was a huge thing and obviously she was a a source of considerable pride to her owners and those who worked on her. And also she just felt like, I imagine, a symbol of industrial might. This massive thing ploughing through all weathers, hauling the wherewithal to make huge American automobiles. You can almost imagine crowds ashore going USA, USA, exactly. USA. Exactly right. It has that feel about it. 50 round trips a season. That's a busy ship, but she's there to work. However... There would come this final voyage. It launched 1958, the final voyage, the tragic voyage 1975. For a saltwater vessel, a vessel plying the oceans, that would be getting on in years, but these things were expected to last at least 50. There's not so much wear and tear on a freshwater vessel as there is on a saltwater vessel. So, yeah, she was still pretty much in her prime. She'd been refitted to make her slightly more capacious. She could carry more just by loading her deeper, letting her settle deeper, and also just improving her manoeuvrability with the addition of a bow thruster, which helps her turn around. She was a a vessel very much in the prime of her life. She'd had the odd scrape. She'd bumped into lock walls and piers, and she'd sort of run aground every now and again, but nothing unexpected and nothing anyone was too concerned about. How many aboard and who? Now, for a vast vessel like this, she didn't actually take that many hands to operate. There were 29 aboard. She was under the command of her final skipper, 63-year-old, very experienced man by the name of Ernest M. McSorley. He had been commanding the Edmund Fitz, or the Mighty Fitz, or the Big Fitz, as she was known, since 1972, one of the operating company's most senior skippers. 
He'd had nine previous commands, both in salt and fresh water, so he was a safe pair of hands. His appointment to this vessel was something of a badge of honour in many ways, and he wore it as such. Is this a Canadian ship or an American ship? She's an American ship. She's owned by an American company and she's operated by... It's an American company. He's Canadian. McSorley himself is Canadian. Uh Aha, yes. Because Gordon Lightfoot did the song, I suppose. It seems as though there's a Canadian uh, connection there. Yeah, well, there is, because Lake Superior, needless to say, washes the shores of both the USA and Canada. Uh And there was briefly, believe it or not, a territorial dispute over whose wreck she was because she sank pretty much on the line dividing the USA and Canada. She's now in Canadian waters, I think, although most of the commercialisation of the wreck has been done by the Americans. So, yeah, she's laid claim to, I guess, by both America and Canada because she's part of the joint story. Ernest McSorley is in command and there are another 28 aboard. That's right. And they're mostly young guys too. You see them in that video footage and, yeah, they've all got big hair and look pretty happy-go-lucky. At least one of them had a relative who was off to Vietnam. They were that sort of age. They were the the age to be drafted or what have you. Just young fellas doing what young fellas do on this massive ship. It's obvious to state that they're an experienced crew. They're doing a lot of transits of this piece of water. What made it different? The thing that made it different was a worse-than-usual storm. They departed the port named Superior at 2.15 on November the 9th, 1975. They were heading across the lake to a place called Zug Island, which had nothing much going for it except a massive steelworks where these ore pallets were going to be turned into steel and then shipped to Detroit, as you say, to be turned into Cadillacs. There was a storm warning. It was a gale warning at that stage, so there was expected to be strong winds. The situation suggested a large storm was going to pass just to the south of Lake Superior. That said, the information that was given was enough for other experienced skippers to decide that the storm that was inbound was actually going to affect Lake Superior far more significantly than the National Weather Service was letting on. And so a number of other skippers took care to place their ships handy to shelter should they need it. McSorley himself was known as a heavy weather skipper. So it didn't matter what the conditions were, he was going to drive his ship through them regardless. And, yeah, that seems to have been his attitude on this day as well. Both he and another one of these enormous freighters, the Arthur M. Anderson, decided since they were steaming more or less in company, they were going to take a pretty much business-as-usual route slightly to the north of the lake just to avail themselves of a bit of shelter from the Canadian coastline. Does it help being a big ship? It does in many ways. The seas aren't going to affect you as much, despite the fact this is a lake, we still call them seas in case there's any confusion. The big waves are not going to make you toss around too much. I just can't help but feel that aboard a vessel this size, there's just going to be a sense of invincibility, the Titanic syndrome. Especially since you've gone through bad weather before and this thing hardly moves in a swell. You're going to feel, well, send her down, Huey, I'm going to push this thing through regardless. In the evening of the fatal voyage of the 29th of November, a gale warning for the entire lake. That's right. And by this stage it had been slightly upgraded, whereas it was previously expected to affect only the southern half of the lake, it was now upgraded for the entire lake. The two skippers, the man named Cooper, who was commanding the Arthur M. Anderson, and McSorley on the Edmund Fitzgerald, agreed that it would be prudent to head for the shelter of an island by the name of Isle Royale and the adjacent coastline 
and just try to sort of tuck into the shelter there. Just avoid the worst of the northerly weather. Then it's upgraded to a storm. At least she's in company, though. You'd think this would help. You would. In the early hours of November the 10th, the storm arrived and it sort of took everyone by surprise with its ferocity. The sustained wind strength was around 52 knots, which is strong, and there was a three-metre swell. Pretty big seas and a very strong wind, but the communication between the two vessels is pretty much routine matters of navigation. There's no real anxiety expressed. At 2pm on November the 10th, the National Weather Service acknowledged that things were turning slightly more pear-shaped than they had been expecting, and they upgraded their warning to a storm warning. It's now pretty plain that this massive storm, and it is a big storm, it closely resembles a hurricane, is going to directly affect the entire lake. It's going to make a direct hit. These two ships are smashing their way into the northerly weather, heading north. The Edmund Fitzgerald overtook the Arthur M. Anderson and she was around 16 nautical miles ahead when the conditions dramatically improved. Now this was the eye of the storm passing over and from then on the conditions just deteriorated beyond anyone's imagining. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. This week the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, famously uh, the subject of a lot of popular culture, most famously Gordon Lightfoot's tune. And oh, it's a massive concern. I had no idea it was uh, more than 200 metres long. It's an iron ore carrier on Lake Superior, and it's done a lot of work. But one day, a big storm would take her. This is in November, November the 10th. Something akin to hurricane force winds on Lake Superior will do to her. It's 4.10 in the afternoon. Just after half past three, I guess, was the first sense that the Arthur Anderson had that the bigger ship, the Edmund Fitzgerald, might be in a bit of trouble. Uh, McSorley radioed and said that he'd lost two vent covers and a fence rail, and he was taking on water and had developed a list. That paints a pretty serious picture, really. She had sustained damage from somewhere, and it's hard to tell from where. It could have been a big sea sweeping her decks. It could have been an object either washed in from the lake, or it could be something breaking adrift from the vessel herself. But either way, it's taken away one of the fences on the deck, and he's now taking on water as well. Now, the reason for this we'll come back to a little later on, because that's the heart of the mystery, really. He announced he was running both bilge pumps and was pretty much keeping pace with the ingress of the water. But this big ship is beginning to lean over to one side and she's in very, very bad conditions, which are getting worse. Is she full of iron ore or is she empty? No, she's absolutely chock-a-block. And one of the difficulties, one of the problems that this type of ore carrier had is that they had no way of actually checking the water level in the hull. Because it was full of iron ore you couldn't really work out how much water was in amongst all that iron ore. There was just no way of doing that. And this could have been critical as well in what was happening. But either way, he knew he was taking on water and he knew there was enough water aboard to give him this list. Things got worse at about 4.10 in the afternoon, November 10, when he contacted the Arthur M. Anderson and asked them to try and catch him up. He said he was slowing his ship down because he'd lost his radar gear. His antennae had been swept away. So he's now blind. He can't see what's around him. And what he's hoping for is that the Arthur M. Anderson is going to be able to catch him up and just keep him on his radar scope and let him know what's going on. 
the Arthur M. Anderson also heard the Eben Fitzgerald talking to a vessel in Whitefish Bay, which is a close by port, and uh, asking whether the lighthouses were working because he was unable to see them. The man who was talking to McSorley at that stage overheard him saying, don't allow nobody on deck. So in other words, he thought it was just too damn dangerous out there for anyone to go out on the deck. McSorley also told this man that he had a bad list and he'd lost both radars and that he was now in the worst seas he had ever experienced. So things are not looking too good out there. Oh, yes, with that amount of experience, he would have seen some heavy seas and for him to say that it was the worst, there would be, fair to say, a fair amount of anxiety. Yeah, he's had experience in the North Atlantic, which is a notorious seaway, gets enormous waves. He's seen those, and these are worse. Sometimes lake swells are because they're purely wind-driven. There's nothing of the sort of oceanic swell about them. They're just purely kicked up by the wind, and they tend to be steeper and shorter than an oceanic swell does. What saw her go to the bottom, and when did it happen? Around 7 o'clock, the Arthur Anderson is still in contact with her. What's happening now is they have the Edmund Fitzgerald firmly on their radar scope. She keeps disappearing, which doesn't cause them too much concern because that's expected in the heavy sea. The sea itself confuses the echo of the radar beam and just that clutter on the screen can occasionally obscure hard objects like the Edmund Fitzgerald. They have noted that she passed way too close to a structure in the water called Caribou Shoal. They were powerless to do anything about the course that the Eben Fitzgerald was steering, but it was their impression that the vessel had passed directly over this area of shallow water. There's no hint of anything of the sort from the Edmund Fitzgerald herself. They're basically saying that it's bad. The Arthur M. Anderson tells them that there's another ship on the way, but that it's going to pass clear, so the Edmund Fitzgerald says, well, that's fine. And the Arthur M. Anderson says to him, how are you doing? And McSorley's words are, well we're holding our own. So in other words, they're taking on water, but the pumps are keeping them out. The conditions are bad, but they're riding them. They're still making forward progress. That, as it turned out, at 7.10pm is the last communication anyone had with the Edmund Fitzgerald. She disappeared from the Arthur M. Anderson's radar scope, and this time, she never re-emerged from the clutter. Oh, God. What does the Arthur M. Anderson do now? Well, at 7.39, she contacted the Coast Guard and just mentioned that she'd lost contact. Didn't make a big song and dance of it at this stage. Made a few inquiries over the radio of other vessels to find out whether, in fact, the Edmund Fitzgerald had managed to make shelter somewhere. There were other possibilities to be canvassed. But she hadn't reappeared. There was no further communication with her despite several attempts to raise her between 7.39, when first anxiety was expressed, and 9.03, when the Arthur M. Anderson decided that the Edmund Fitzgerald was now officially not there anymore. Oh, dear. These are dreadful weather conditions. What can be done? Well, that's it, exactly. And, in fact, on the internet, you can listen to the conversation between the Coast Guard, the American Coast Guard, and the skipper, Captain Cooper, of the Arthur M. Anderson. They say, we have no other vessels in the area. Do you mind turning around and going back and searching the area where you last saw the Edmund Fitzgerald on your radar? The man you hear speaking, Captain Cooper, is a frightened man. He's in charge of another one of these huge vessels, and he doesn't want to go back out there. He's incredibly relieved at getting his own ship to safety, and he doesn't want to go back out there. 
Nevertheless, he does. The wind begins to moderate and the Coast Guard are eventually able to launch a fixed-wing aircraft and a helicopter. Then in the early hours of the next morning, a couple of other vessels arrive on the scene as well. All they can find is an oil slick and a debris field floating bits of ship, including both of the lifeboats that the Edmund Fitzgerald had aboard, one of which has been torn in half. Exactly how she went down is theories abound because just being such a huge ship, there's something, however it happened, and you'll address the possibilities, something so spooky and unsettling about such a massive thing being taken in this way. In the blinking of an eye, and it has to be in the blinking of an eye for there to be no communication. All you have to do, really, on a, a modern emergency radio is press a button or fire a flare or sort of anything uh, just to indicate that you are aware that disaster is overtaking your vessel. Whatever happened to this ship was so sudden that there was just no action that could be taken, and that is absolutely spooky. We'll take a break, come back with Edmund Fitzgerald, where she rests and the theories about how she could have gone down so quickly. 222 metres, massive industrial ship taken by Lake Superior, 1975. You're tuned in. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. This week, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, 1975. A massive ship taken by Lake Superior, seemingly in the blink of an eye, with 29 on board. What happened after the disbelief had to turn into belief that this thing had gone to the bottom with the 29 aboard? Well, four days after she was last heard from, an Orion flying over with a piece of equipment called a magnetometer detected something large and metal on the lake bed. No one needed to guess what this might be, and a side-scan sonar paints a picture of what's actually lying there, the shape of it on the bottom, showed that there were two large sections of the Edmund Fitzgerald lying on the lake bed under 535 feet of water, way, way, way down in this freezing cold water. Yeah, she became a bit of a target thereafter. It was absolutely known now that she'd sunk, and she became thereafter a sort of a... A hobby, really, for people who had underwater search gear. And this was the golden age of that kind of exploration. The remote-operated vehicle, which is basically a robot that can take cameras way, way down underwater, and you can sort of poke them around by controlling this machine from the surface. People started playing around with those in various places, and the Edmund Fitzgerald became a favourite for that. A whole bunch of people had a go with remote-operated vehicles, including Jacques Cousteau's son, Jean-Michel, who got a um, remote-operated vehicle down there, and from what he saw on his video, he reckoned that the Edmund Fitzgerald must have broken up on the surface and then fallen to the lake bed in two sections. 
1994, another remote-operated vehicle spotted the remains of a crew member in the deckhouse of the forward part of the wreck, and this was wearing a life jacket. So they deduced from that that one member of the crew, I suppose is all we can say, had some idea that this vessel might go down. In 1995, quite remarkably, a diver got down, 160 metres down, in something called a newt suit, which is basically a submarine that you wear. And he was on a mission to actually retrieve the bell from the Edmund Fitzgerald for the families to construct a memorial. He was successful in this. He hacked it off with oxyacetylene torch. He placed a replica of the bell there, which had the names of those who were lost engraved on it. And then he also had the consideration to take a can of beer and place it in the wheelhouse of the Edmund Fitzgerald. That's a real feat of underwater anything, really. Mm. Um, but yes, so the bell was used to make a um, memorial. Other divers got down using fancy new technology called Trimix, where you breathe, instead of ordinary old air, you breathe a mixture of oxygen, helium and nitrogen. They managed to get down there and spend fully five minutes or so on the wreck, but actually to touch it. And again, that's quite a feat. It's a remarkable achievement, really. It was the uh, deepest shipwreck dive in history, wasn't it? That's right, it was. And it, so far as I know, it still is, because I know someone who used to hold that record and their dive, the dive he and his companion completed, was in just over 100 metres of water. So 160 has to be it, I think. Wow. When you say that one of the divers discovered in 1994 the remains of one of the crew skeleton or what was it? No, I gather it was pretty well preserved because there's not going to be much aerobic activity down at that depth and in those temperatures really. Mm -hmm. So yeah, decomposition had happened but pretty slowly I would think. It's not like the ocean where stuff lives pretty much at any depth and yeah, it'll eat anything. Lake beds tend to be pretty anaerobic I, I expect that was the case down there where the Edmund Fitzgerald is. She's still in a remarkable state of preservation thanks to the fresh water and, uh, again, that lack of oxygen down there. The theories on how, why she went down? Yeah, with all this information that the various surveys had produced and lots of video footage and whatever, there's a very clear picture of the way the wreck was lying. The forward section, which includes the bridge, is sitting upright on the seabed and you can see this great big bow wave of mud that she's ploughed as she's gone in. And then the after section is lying upside down and at some considerable distance and at an angle to the forward section. The interpretation of that became critical to what theory you applied to what had happened to her. It very much looked as though she'd broken up on the surface and descended in two pieces. But it became a sort of political football because those who were in charge of regulating this industry tended to go for those theories that suggested this was just a freak accident and the vessel was perfectly fine but she'd been overwhelmed by unimaginable conditions. She'd gone to the bottom in one piece and then broken up down there. Those who worked in the industry and, I guess, unions and what have you tended to look to those theories that suggested she'd broken up on the surface through some structural failure or something like that. Just in brief, the various theories that there are of how she went down were the simple stress of weather theory that a combination of the wind and waves were just more than this enormous vessel could stand. It created a stress fracture perhaps in the hull and that broke her up and sank her or that enough waves came aboard in quick enough succession, just ordinary old waves, that she couldn't shake them free and they basically sent her under. A variation on that one is the rogue wave theory, that 
just simply enormous waves smashed into the vessel and found their way into the hull. And there's a phenomenon on Lake Superior called the Three Sisters, where in storms like this, it's a well-known phenomenon that every now and then a set of three waves that are up to one-third bigger than the the ordinary run-of-the-mill waves uh, will come along. And significantly or not, at 6.30, the Arthur Anderson was struck by two waves that were just bloody enormous. They nearly put the bridge of that enormous vessel underwater. They were 35 feet high, and they went rolling off into the storm in the direction of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And Captain Cooper of the Arthur M. Anderson was pretty confident that they had quite a lot to do with the loss of the Edmund Fitzgerald. They experienced that wave set and could basically extrapolate where it was going and think, uh-oh, that could be bad if they merged together, that sort of thing. Absolutely right, yep. The one that the official inquiries tended to favour was the hatch failure theory. The Edmund Fitzgerald had 21 watertight hatches along the length of her hull. They're enormous. The hatch covers themselves weigh 8 tonnes. They're 48 feet long by 11 feet wide. And they're held down by a series of almost like G-clamps all the way around them, which had to be tightened by hand. It was noted that when she left port, not all of these had been fastened, but apparently that was pretty common procedure if you left in fine weather. You got on with the work of fastening them as you sort of sailed off into the sunset. It's presumed that that was done and they were correctly fastened, but somehow they failed one way or another. Or the rogue wave just struck one of these hatches, forced its way through, and enough water went aboard after that to send her down. Another theory is that she struck something underwater. She bottomed out. So either she struck that shoal off Caribou Island. Apparently there was an uncharted section of the shoal that she may well have passed over. So she might have hit the bottom. There's also right in the middle of uh, Lake Superior, there's an underwater mountain that approaches within 20 feet of the surface. She may have struck that. And in fact, her course placed her very close to it. There's a structural failure theory, just that these vessels, because they were designed in the days before you could do sort of virtual testing of the the structural integrity of things like ships and aeroplanes and whatever, she was just too long and too narrow to withstand the kinds of forces that big waves would subject her to. (laughs) And she developed a stress fracture, basically broke in half and sank. What are the strongest theories, uh, uh, if there are any, on how this massive thing went down? Yeah, well, I like Captain Cooper's explanation of the whole thing. He reckons that when he first heard that there were any problems, there was already a list aboard the Edmund Fitzgerald. So she'd already shipped enough water to be leaning. That water had to be getting in somewhere. It could have been getting in through hatch covers, but nothing was mentioned about those being missing or damaged or compromised. So his theory is that the hull had a stress fracture of some sort. The problem with the Edmund Fitzgerald and most of that type of vessel is they didn't have watertight compartments. So as soon as water started going in, basically it had the run of the ship. If there was some breach in the hull, then that was it, really. He thought there might have been structural damage inflicted by scraping over Caribou Shoal, but he also thought that it was just perfectly possible that the ship sort of hogging and and pitching and rolling would open a stress fracture. She was a completely welded hull. She had no rivets. Now, rivets offer much more flexibility than welding. Welding can be quite brittle. So with the enormous forces that these big waves would be placing on that long, long, long hull, there's every possibility that some of those welds might have disintegrated. 
She's the most famous maritime, if that's the right word, uh, tragedy on the Great Lakes. She can't have been the only one. No. Uh, apparently, by the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum's count, around 6,000 vessels and up to 30,000 lives have been lost on the Great Lakes. And in fact, in the vicinity where the Edmund Fitzgerald herself sank, well over 200 vessels have been lost since 1816. So, yeah, th- these are not safe waters. Did any shipping the similar size and structure to the Edmund Fitzgerald go down in a similar way? Yeah, uh, in 1980, a British bulk carrier, the name escapes me, was lost. Um, That was a very similar loss. She was sailing in rough weather and just seemed to be suddenly overwhelmed by the sea. The suspicion at that stage was that it was exactly the same fate. Some structural failure had escalated rapidly in bad conditions and sent her to the bottom. And there had previously, on the Great Lakes themselves, been lots of losses of shipping just through the awful conditions that the lakes are capable of throwing up. Was shipbuilding changed, or at least procedures perhaps, to avoid this? Yeah, a whole bunch of stuff got changed in the wake of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Even the way the forecasting was done was changed. The charts were improved. There was all this shallow water that hadn't been correctly charted. It suddenly became quite important to everyone to make sure they knew what was where. Watertight bulkheads were introduced in bulk carriers. The maintenance routines were improved. It became important to equip these vessels with depth sounders. Incredibly, as it seems, the Edmund Fitzgerald didn't have one. The way they determined how deep the water was is they'd chuck a line over and count how many knots ran through their fingers until the lead weight on the end hit the bottom. They were doing Uh, that in the 1300s. They were doing it in the 1300s, and they were doing it in 1975. That was what she had for working out her depth. Pretty much her courses steered her clear of shallow water. It just so happens that she may have passed into an area of shallow water sometime on this last voyage. She's been memorialised, made famous by the tune, but you were telling us she was famous before as well, but a bit of an Edmund Fitzgerald industry has emerged. Yeah, apparently it's described as sort of a cottage industry. Both the Canadians and the Americans on Lake Superior like to sell you memorabilia of the Edmund Fitzgerald, like T-shirts and Christmas decorations. There's even an Edmund Fitzgerald beer, so you can toast the departed. Yeah, it was inevitable, I suppose. I suppose that is on behalf of all of the loss of life of shipping on the Great Lakes. She's like a touchstone for that. That's right. She's a focal point, I guess. And the Edmund Fitzgerald display at the Shipwrecks Museum on the Great Lakes is very much the centrepiece. Yeah, she, she really focused attention, I guess, on the tragedy that is loss of life at sea or on, on the lakes. John McChrystal, thank you very much. The legend is on from the Chippewong down up the big lake they call Get Sugar Man. The lake it is that never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With the load of iron ore 26,000 tons more than the heaven and the Fitzgerald weighed empty. That big ship and true the ship was the pride of the American side, coming back from some mill in Wisconsin. As the big breeders go, it was bigger than most, with the growing good captain well seasoned. 
Concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms When they left the railroad loaded for Cleveland And later that night when the ships fell rain Could it be the north wind they'd been feeling? Search us on, save 